I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Give our attention this evening to uh, verses 18 to 20, but we'll begin reading in verse 11 here. Uh, Paul uh, speaks of the purpose of the death of Christ and the ministry that the church is to bring in light of his death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning, I will begin in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this very thing, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the great hope of Christ crucified and raised. And we ask that as we give consideration to your word before us this evening, that you would open our eyes to see our greatest need and the provision that is found in the giving of your Son. We ask these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, what is your greatest need? I think if you were to ask your neighbors, even the most selfless neighbors, you get a variety of answers, particularly uh, now in the midst uh, of a, you know, a global pandemic. You ask what your greatest need is, you might hear the more immediate answer. What we need are uh, vaccinations, my first or perhaps my second vaccination. Or perhaps you might have some cranky neighbors. I shouldn't say cranky, uh, but those uh, arguing uh, the exact opposite. What we need is a, is a greater uh, uh, affirmation of our own personal liberties. I think even in normal situations, you get a variety of answers. Well, greatest need, pay off student loans. Have you seen what I have to pay every month? Perhaps it might be a mortgage. Perhaps you see your greatest need and hope is to get your kids into a good school or to make it to retirement and have at least a little money in the bank. 
If you were to ask uh, beyond the bound of our neighbors and you ask the local politicians or even our national politicians, you might get a different set of answers. What's the greatest need uh, before us? Well, it's economic reform, immigration reform, tax reform. Any cause presented as the most pressing concern in the history of all needs and crises ever. If you were to ask celebrity church leaders what our greatest need is, you might hear yet another set of answers. Health and wealth. Felt needs. Just to live an authentic lifestyle. The passage before us that we have reminds us that in the midst of these cacophony of voices, all screaming, trying to tell us, and in fact, even perhaps trying to sell us what our greatest need is, we find that none of these fully satisfy the question that is presented before us. What we find tonight is that the Bible tells us what our greatest problem is, and with it, what our greatest need is. Our greatest problem is that we have offended a holy God. And so our greatest need is to be reconciled to that holy God. And what we find here as well is the greatest news you could ever imagine is that reconciliation with God is possible as He has opened up a new and living way. Have friendship with God restored. That is Paul's ministry that is given to the church, and that is the task of every minister of the gospel. Hopefully, as churches throughout the world are gathered together together this evening, are preaching this very same message, be it from this text or another, the fact that reconciliation has been effected through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like us to consider two things from this passage in verses 18 to 20 this evening. First, we'll consider the means of, of reconciliation. How is it that man can be reconciled to God? And then secondly, we'll consider the ministry of reconciliation, as this is the task that has been entrusted to the church. Well, if you call this uh, broader passage, it just so happens to be we've been working through 2 Corinthians now for the past four months, perhaps I think longer But within this chapter we find, and within these opening chapters of this letter, we find that Paul has made this repeated affirmation. Christ has indeed risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven on high, and he has now appointed Paul to be a herald of good news. This good news that man can be reconciled to God. And yet we find within the particularities of the church of Corinth, wicked men have infiltrated this particular congregation. They've tried to keep people from being reconciled to God by setting up obstacles, even though the people might not see them as obstacles. They keep throwing Paul's name into disrepute. They keep now teaching a false gospel, making the ministry all about themselves and their own celebrity status rather than making the ministry what it really is designed to be, how it is that man can be reconciled to God. 
Here are snake oil salesmen, and Paul will call them the super apostles later on in this letter. Those seeking fortune and glory who boast in their own personal uh, charisma, their own public charm, men who can draw a crowd by their own rhetorical skills, and yet men who have failed to make the purpose of Christ's death plain to men. And so they are abject failures in the eyes and in light of the message of the cross. Why is it that Christ came to die? One of the most important questions you could ever seek to answer. And yet these celebrity preachers, rather than seeking to drive home this point, the centerpiece of all of Scripture, they've made the ministry all about themselves. They've got all the externals down to a T, and yet they are unable to deal with man's real problem. The reality of a sinful heart, the message that these false teachers proclaim, are unable to reckon with the reality of sin. And so they plaster anything they can on top of it to make you think that they really are spiritual when they are not ministers of this new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit. And yet we find this is what distinguishes Paul from the false teachers. Paul has good news. A gospel. That's what gospel means is good news. And Paul has good news and something that these celebrity preachers might that these celebrity preachers do not have. Paul here has a message so powerful that it causes the light to shine into darkness. And it causes men to be reconciled to God. That though man's sin has separated him from his God, God has sent Christ, God's Son, to die in our place that we might be delivered from our sins and reconciled to a holy God. Notice here in three verses, verses 18 and 19 and 20, you find the word reconcile five times. It's as if Paul is trying to communicate something. The question we have, though, is what does reconcile mean? Right? It's not a hard word, but it is definitely a concept Paul clearly intends to drive home. So we need to consider what it is that Paul is trying to say the ministry is really about. What does reconcile mean? Very simply, it means this. It means to make friends again. It assumes that there's actually been a falling out, though, between two friends. You don't walk up to a stranger on the street and say, well, let's be reconciled. I don't even know you. I didn't know I had an arch nemesis. How should I be reconciled to you? This isn't about making friends. This is about fixing a broken relationship. Two parties where one party has offended the other. And if ever there is peace to be made between those two parties, at least two things has to occur. That offense has to be reckoned with. You just can't pretend that that offense never happened. Second thing that's needed, of course, is that the offended party must be willing to be reconciled and received into friendship yet again. And so here Paul speaks of two particular parties, God and man. God is the offended party. Man himself is the offender. What is the offense? 
When we find throughout Paul's letter here and throughout the rest of Scripture, that offense is the reality of sin. Sin is not simply a, a failure to live up to your, your highest potential, as some would want to describe it. No, sin is a transgression of God's holy law. God's law as it's been revealed to us in the Ten Commandments. Think of what Isaiah tells the people of God under inspiration of the Spirit. He says, your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Sin is the reason for the breach between man and God. The Bible speaks of sin as spiritual adultery. That is the prevailing image of the Old Testament for what our sin is in the eyes of God. Think of how offended you would be if you found out that your spouse was cheating on you. And yet, consider how much greater an offense it would be if you found out that he or she did nothing to hide it. Was doing it openly and flagrantly before your very eyes, viciously. And yet, that's what Scripture says our sin is to God. In thought, in word, indeed, it is spiritual adultery. And we're not simply doing this in private. We're doing this flagrantly with a high hand before the living God, thinking, what can He really do? You see, Scripture tells us we're not an innocent bystander. Sometimes we'll speak of sin as though sin is something that happens to us. And for sure, we do suffer the consequences of other people's sins. Sure, we are born into an estate of sin, and yet we are not innocent bystanders. We are culprits, rebels by nature. Doesn't sound like good news yet have the, the spotlight shine on a bank robber as he's caught you know, with, with, with his hands on the money bags. That's not good news, but yet that tells us of the predicament that the human race has found itself in. I mean, imagine the particular uh, illustration of, of, of a marriage that's falling apart. You know, often when a marriage falls apart, not always, but often you find that both parties are guilty to some degree or another because everybody is a sinner. And so usually when, when uh, 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 reconciliation is, is tried to be made, there's an outside party that has to come in and try to mediate between these two parties. And yet, in this image that Scripture gives of God and man and man's sin being that of spiritual adultery, that is not to insinuate that God is somehow partially responsible, that somehow God needs to apologize to us in order for our sins first to be dealt with. God has done no wrong. He is the holy, just, and righteous God. He is the one who cannot wink at sin. He is the one who is unable and unwilling to lie. The guilt is fully on our end. And so there is no outside mediating party. And yet the good news that we find here is that God Himself becomes the agent of reconciliation. One of the most moving books in the Old Testament is the book of Hosea. Where the Lord Himself calls on one of His prophets to mirror in His own personal life the relationship of the Lord God of Israel to His own people. And so He tells Hosea, I'm going to go and marry 
a prostitute. This isn't the fairy tale story of a prophet who comes and simply because he buys her flowers and roses, she amends all of her ways. No, he buys, he marries a prostitute and she continues flagrantly to throw herself into her own sins. And yet, Hosea is called to remain steadfast in his love and care for her. Because it's intended to be a picture of God's own love for the church. There's a grammar lesson to be had here in this passage as Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. Note the subject and verbs you see here in verses 18 and 19. It is God who reconciles us to Himself. It is God who was reconciling the world to Himself. It is God who was not counting our trespasses against us. It was God who has entrusted to Paul this message of reconciliation. In other words, the picture that we have before us is not that God is somehow the offended party who is unwilling to make a move forward, and so now some third party has to come and and try to convince God uh, to somehow make amends with His people. No, what Scripture tells us over and over again is even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We might die for our friends, we might die for loved ones, but none of us would really die for our enemies. And this is exactly what the Lord does. He sends His Son willingly to do so. And His Son goes willingly to the cross to do so. Earlier this evening, we had the historical account of the death of Christ. And over and over again, there's this repeated refrain that those whom Christ stands in trial in front of all recognize this. This is one who has done nothing wrong. Pilate says that. This man has done nothing wrong. Herod says that. This man has done nothing wrong. Even as Christ is crucified. There's a criminal hanging beside him says, this man has done nothing wrong. And as Christ dies, you have a Roman centurion saying, this man has done nothing wrong. Here is Christ who has been condemned as a criminal though he has done no wrong. And Scripture tells us that this is not an accident of history. It's the greatest wrong and injustice ever done to anyone in history. And yet it is here that the justice of God is revealed. That God sent His Son to bear our sins that we might be pardoned of ours. Though Christ had done no wrong, He bears our sins. God is the initiator. He is the agent of reconciliation. Though our sins have separated us from God, God has not uh, subcontracted out some third-party mediator. God has rather sent His Son. God Himself has taken the initiative to reconcile enemies to Himself John chapter 3, verse 16 does not say that God sent His Son into the world so that He might love them. It says the exact inverse. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. The cross is the revelation of God's love for sinners. 
that God has delighted to make a way to have His wrath satisfied so that He can pour His mercy out on the undeserving and still satisfy the courts of divine justice. We see here in verses 18 and 19 that God has done two things in particular. First, He has dealt with that offense in Christ. And then secondly, He has entrusted a message to declare what has been accomplished in Christ. This ministry of reconciliation, it is so important. It's not enough for God to send His Son to die on the cross and for us never to hear about it. God Himself had to raise up preachers to preach that gospel so that we would know how it was that we could be delivered from our sin and misery. I mean, imagine this particular scenario. You decide to get one uh, drunk one night and you intentionally crash a car into a billionaire's mansion. You crash your car right there in the front living room. Run over the family dog. It's intentional. It's not an accident. Damage is inestimable. It's public shame. The news media is there even before the ambulance arrives. Damage is so extensive, there's no way you will ever pay off the costs. The judge delivers the verdict. That verdict is guilty. You have the prison sentence. The judge says until you're able to pay off every last penny, you're not getting out. But then you hear the owner say, I've paid the property damages. It's good news. So when we see Paul here give this command, be reconciled to God, Paul is not saying you better pay up. It's not good news. The damage that we have wrought is inestimable. What we find in the Gospel is that God Himself has paid the price. He has put the bill. So great is His love for you. So great is His love for sinners. So the call now is to receive that reconciliation. Which would it be? Would you rather go to prison? Would you rather have the billionaire just say, I've paid the, I've paid the bill? Which will it be? Would you rather spend an eternity in hell facing the eternal wrath of God? Or would you rather put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and find pardon for sin? That's why Paul does not say reconcile yourself to God. Again, we must note the grammar here. It is in the passive. Be reconciled to God, recognizing that it is God who is the agent and initiator of this reconciliation. That reconciliation is made on this basis that God no longer reckons our sins against us. Rather, He reckoned our sins against Christ at the cross. So Paul says we're ambassadors. We have been entrusted with a message. You think about the purpose of an ambassador. I have a a buddy of mine I went to college with who became a a foreign ambassador, a diplomat for, uh, I believe it was in Turkey. Um, Think about what his duty is to go overseas to another country. It's not to go and spout off his own personal political opinions. This is right off the the cusp of 9-11. No, his job, his duty is to go and act as a representative of his country and to give a particular message that has been spelled out in terms of his own home country's foreign policy. What Paul says here is that the preacher is an ambassador. 
That's, that's the concept. My job is not to come up here and give you my opinions on the news that has taken place throughout this week. Perhaps it would do more harm than good if I gave my personal opinion on politics. Because so you'll probably meet, never meet somebody as ill-informed on politics as me right here. That's not my job. The job of an ambassador is to speak on behalf of the king of his home country. The ambassador is not here to give nice feel-good messages. He is not here to give nice hallmark platitudes. He's here to communicate foreign policy. And as an ambassador, Paul's message, and so every preacher of the gospel's message is this, that the time of amnesty has come. As the ambassador is sent to hostile kingdoms, saying, the king is conquered and he's coming. And there's a period. Be reconciled to King Jesus before it is too late. Your sins have offended a holy God and God offers full pardon if you would but just confess your sins and turn from them. And turn to Christ in faith before it is too late. Because there is a coming day when Christ will return to judge the world in righteousness. When that day comes, it'll be too late. The offer for amnesty will come to an end. All who reject this reconciliation will stand condemned forever. And so what we see before us this evening, returning to the question, what is your greatest need? Your greatest need is not a new stock portfolio. It's not a clean bill of health. It's not to be affirmed by your peers. It is not to be vindicated of how you have been defrauded by your neighbor. It is not to find that lasting relationship that you think will make all of your problems dissipate. What we find is our greatest need is a Savior, one who will deliver us from the wrath to come. And yet here we find the greatest news that the deliverance has come through the death of Christ. And the offer goes out to be reconciled to God because there is a God who is coming soon in vengeance and in fury upon all who reject this prospect of full pardon. What we find is there is no greater news to be found in the history of the world. This is why when we preach from Scripture, it's the driving, home, the, the driving point of every message. Christ has come. And salvation is to be found in Christ alone. So if you've not put your hope in Christ, I urge you to be reconciled to God. To put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and find friendship and the restoration of fellowship the living God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that despite the, the reality that we all face, the reality of the coming wrath of divine justice, that you have made a way of escape through faith and faith alone in the death and resurrection 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins that we might bear His righteousness. We pray that You would work faith in our hearts if we do not believe. And if we do, that You would strengthen our faith, that we would believe further still as we look forward to that day when our faith will give way to sight and we see our Savior return in vengeance against His enemies and in salvation for all who long to see Him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.